All right, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're continuing our series, This is the Way. Now, as I told you last time, that, that phrase, this is the way, comes from the show The Mandalorian. Uh, I love uh, watching that show. I've watched it uh, the first season and into the second season. Uh, it's a fascinating one. It's where, where Baby Yoda comes in, uh, or uh, uh, I probably shouldn't ruin it for you, but Grogu. Uh, but uh, I love that phrase because it captures, in essence, the idea that we live our faith. We live what we believe. In the, in the show, the Mandalorian, they'll say something. They'll say, this is, this is how we're supposed to do this thing. And they go, this is the way. There's no other further explanation. It's just, this is the way. This is the way things are done. And the reality is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through him, this is the way. He is the way. This way is his way and not our own. And so I think as believers in Christ, we need to get comfortable being, living in the skin of his way and living uh, by his way, thinking his thoughts after him, living those things which he says are true. Last week we talked about the fact that we, and we were introduced by, in Luke's gospel to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the first character that came up. And John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord, right? He came not only to prepare the way of the Lord, he came to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, as we see in Luke 1.17. That's us, preparing us. He prepared the way for Jesus, but he also prepared, and in doing so, did it by preparing us. One of the things that he gave us was anticipation. In the first century, it was this anticipation. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. They didn't understand it completely. They thought he was coming as a king. They thought he was coming to throw off Roman rule. And then he died for them, and, and they didn't get that. And they didn't understand uh, Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant that had to come first before the conquering king. And so they had to learn through that process. And, and so we, they, they were, he was giving this, this sense of anticipation. And Luke has used John the Baptist for our generation and for every reader of his gospel. He uses, Luke, uh, uses John the Baptist to prepare our hearts, to prepare our way, so that we're anticipating God supernaturally being involved in his world. And we begin to pray to that end. We ask the Lord in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're inviting the divine to come involved and become involved in our world. We're inviting him. We're welcoming him. And so we're living our lives in anticipation. We pray we should anticipate what God is going to do, that God is going to work, that he is going to involve himself in our world because we've invited him. We've asked him to come. We've asked him to be involved. As Jesus said, we should in the Lord's Prayer. So what are we praying for? You see, I was wrestling with that issue this week because I was thinking, well, John the Baptist was, was uh, causing us to anticipate the coming of Jesus. Well, now Jesus comes. Well, what's this, what's, what are we supposed to be learning from this particular area of theology? Because I believe that everything we read in Scripture should impact us. It should cause us to ask the question, so what then? What now do you want us to do as a result of knowing this about Jesus' birth? I think that there's a very significant thing. And I think that, that it's, it's stated by Mary. It says, uh, 
Let it be to me according to your word. Have you ever said that to the Lord? Let it be to me according to your word. Have you ever said yes to God? Or have you made excuses to God? Have you said, God, I'm not sure I want to do this. I know that you've got this thing for me, and I know I've been praying for it. I don't know that I want it. I don't want what you're giving me. I don't like the answer that you're giving me. How many times have we prayed for something and all of a sudden it happened and then we're not sure we're excited all, of, all that excited about it? I know, I know people have told me that when they heard the good news that they were pregnant, they weren't happy about it. They weren't excited about it. They were scared to death about it. They were frustrated with it. They didn't know if they had the finances for it. I mean, all the different excuses and questions and thoughts, but here it comes, right? People that have gotten a new job or been accepted to a school and all of a sudden they're they're not sure that that's what they wanted. How many times has the good news that we have heard been something that's alarming to us and that it hit us the wrong way when we first heard about it? Here's an example of that. What about COVID? What if COVID was an answer to our prayers? How many of you have prayed, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. Come now. I'm tired of what's going on in my life. Lord, just come. Maranatha, come today. Have you ever prayed that? I would bet that every single believer at some point in their spiritual walk have asked the Lord to come. Well, guess what's got to happen before he comes again? Yeah, you got the first coming, the birth of Christ. And then if he's going to come again, he shows up on a white horse at the end of the tribulation period. So there's got to be seven years of tribulation and, and, and everything going downhill in our world to that point so that it's ready for the tribulation. So what are we asking for? We're asking for this world to go through great pain in order for Jesus to finally return again. We don't always want what we ask for. We don't always want what we're praying for. And perhaps part of the prayer that we need to be praying is, Lord, change my heart so that I will say yes to you when the going gets tough, so that I will say yes to you when you begin to do what I'm expecting and what I'm anticipating. Because guess what? I guarantee you that Elizabeth was praying for the Messiah to come and that Mary was praying for the Messiah to come, and neither one of them anticipated what that was going to mean for their lives. Elizabeth having her husband not speak for nine months, although that might have been a good thing for her, I don't know don't know uh text doesn't tell us but you know just thinking about that and thinking about the fact that that here we are with with mary she comes along and what kind of pain was she going to go through in her life when people found out that she was pregnant not married yet betrothed which is a different thing than our engagement period and so it's like what happened there? And what kind of pain would she go through? And we know that when, when Simeon shows up on the scene in chapter uh, 2, he tells her, a sword will pierce through your own soul. And Mary probably knew that he was going to say that or knew that was going to be said about her, about her life because she was giving birth to the Messiah And as much joy and excitement as that would bring, she knew that it had already brought pain in her life. That was probably going to be more. Are we willing to say yes to God's plan when it involves pain 
And many times that happens. There's been several times in my life, maybe multiple times in my life, where God has clearly made it evident to me that I'm supposed to do something and I don't want to do it. Ever been there? You know what my answer to him is? Every time it has to come around to this. Lord Jesus, you died for me. I'll do whatever you ask me to do, no matter how painful it is, no matter what it costs me, I'm yours. If I say yes to him, I have to go through that process and come to that point where I say that to him. And I think that that's the question is, when God does what we're anticipating, what we're praying for, are we willing to to be like Mary who says yes and was called a woman of faith or of Zechariah? who was someone who didn't believe at first, and God still used him. But it became evident that he didn't believe. In fact, it was so evident that he was not able to speak. We see these people showing up in Luke's gospel. Six different situations, events, pericopes, if you will, uh, first one is unbelief of Zechariah is the focus. Mary's is faith. And I think that that's where we need to be thinking about. When we're thinking about what, what is Luke trying to communicate to us, it's a life of faith, a life that says yes to God, that says I will, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and uh, uh, died for me. It's, it's that idea that I'm crucified with Christ, that I live by faith. And then the joy that comes about that in Elizabeth's life and also in Mary's life and this joyful song that you see, a song of of joy. You see Zechariah finally coming around when he shows up again and he'll show up next week. And the shepherds on Christmas Eve as we talk about them and their worship of our Savior. And then the blessing of Simeon and Anna uh, the Sunday after Christmas, as we think about these, these different events that happen, as Luke begins to lay out his gospel, he's laying this out so that we understand that we have hearts that are prepared. And not just prepared for the Christmas season, prepared for life. If this COVID thing uh, continues on into next year, if, if other things begin to happen, and, and there's always stuff that comes up in any given year, am I going to say yes to God? Am I going to have a life that says, yes, let it be to me according to your word? Right now, you might be going through something where you're wrestling with God and you're thinking, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to speak to that person about you. I don't want to stand up for you in in regard to this issue. And we find ourselves wrestling. You may be in that position right now where you're wrestling, you're struggling. And I'm not going to tell you what you need to do except for this, that you do what the Lord leads you to do. That you follow his lead, that you live by faith. Well, let's look at the passage and let's kind of walk our way through it so that we can understand what it is that Luke is trying to communicate, how he communicates this issue of faith. In verse 26 of chapter 1 of of the Gospel of Luke, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We'll stop there. I want to talk about a few things here in this, this passage. First is the sixth month. The sixth month of what? Well, in 
verse 24, it said that uh, Elizabeth was in her fifth month, and then in the sixth month, so it's talking about Elizabeth's pregnancy. So in the sixth month of, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this angel shows up, Gabriel. Now, Gabriel and Michael, the archangel, are only two angels mentioned by name in Scripture. And so here's one of those. He's, a, he's announcing uh, coming in, entering into the world in a supernatural way. He's already, Luke has already set the tone by showing the supernatural working of God with, uh, with uh, Zechariah's life. And now he continues that so that we know uh, what is going on. And I believe that he does that for a reason. He wants us to understand who this Son of God is. He wants us to understand that this Son of God is, is, the, is the perfect man that the Greeks were looking for because Luke's gospel was written to the Greek. And so he's wanting them to understand this is more than the perfect man. He's supernatural. He's the one that everyone looks to. And he's, this angel Gabriel went to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Now, several things about that. Notice that in Elizabeth, she's living down in the hill, we'll see later in the text, living down in the hill country of Judea. She's living near Jerusalem, probably about four or five miles away from Jerusalem uh, in that hill country. We're not told what city. And so she's living in the hill country, and that's, that is a whole different environment than the Galilee. The Galilee we see a little bit of uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 9 when he talks about it. And he, and he talks about it being Galilee of the Gentiles. And so it was seen as a Gentile area. It wasn't even seen really as a Jewish area. And the Gentiles were despised by the Jews. So that gives you a reason to, to think they were probably looking down on them. We find from John chapter 1 this idea of looking down when, when uh, 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 it's spoken to, uh, and I just went blank on his name, uh, 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 that he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Nathaniel, finally got it. <laughs> Nathaniel tells uh, uh, his, his brother, Andrew, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth, if you have ever been to Israel, uh, you'll find that Nazareth on the opposite of the Jezreel Valley from, from uh, Megiddo. You, know, you stand at Megiddo, you can see Nazareth. Nazareth is like a cereal bowl. And the city in, in ancient times was down in the middle of that bowl. And, it was, and it was, you couldn't even see it. And so it wasn't a significant place. The trade route didn't even go past it. So it wasn't significant to trade. It was a place that was left out. But interestingly, that's where the light dwelled. In fact, we see in, chapter, in Isaiah 9, it says, The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light, his light has shone. And, the, and who is this light? We're told in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus is the light who was to come that Isaiah is talking about. And so we go back and, we, and he tells us some things about this Messiah. It says, In the former time he was brought into contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And so here's that Galilee of the Gentiles kind of idea. 
It was a backwoods kind of area. If you go up into the Galilee today, it's peaceful, it's serene. There's not a lot of activity. There's not a lot going on there. It's just this, it's, it's almost seen, and I'm sure in, in ancient times, as a third world area. And Jerusalem was where it was all happening. And God goes to Nazareth. He makes that place significant. And he prophesies about it through Isaiah. Zebulun and Naphtali, most people aren't familiar with those two tribes, where they're located. They're both located in the Galilee, two, two of the four that are mentioned. Naphtali, Asher, Zebulun, and Issachar are all up in the Galilee area. And interestingly, where Zebulun is, is where Nazareth is located. And where Naphtali is mentioned is where Capernaum is, where Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum to do his adult ministry or, or his, 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 his ministry as an adult leaving Nazareth and beginning for three and a half years working out of Capernaum. Capernaum was on the way of the sea which is exactly what Isaiah mentions here. And so in fulfillment of prophecy we see that Gabriel went to the city of Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So this idea of betrothal is something that's, that's foreign to us. It was something that at puberty someone was betrothed to someone else. And, and this betrothal period was considered like marriage. It was stronger than our engagement period. Engagement we can get out of easily. Uh, their engagement or betrothal period, you had a divorce to get out of it. And so it wasn't an easy thing. You were, you were considered husband and wife at that point, but you didn't live together. And so here was this amazing thing that was happening, that this idea of, the, of a virgin birth, which Isaiah also talks about in chapter 7, where it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God in the flesh. The incarnation of God here dwelling among us was the idea. And that's exactly what Luke is pointing to when he talks about this virgin birth. And he wants them to understand it was supernatural with Elizabeth. Now it's going to be supernatural with Mary. And in fact, one of the things, one of the themes that I began to pick up as I read through the whole book of uh, Gospel of Luke was this idea of the Holy Spirit, power and authority. And I see that uh, in, in, this, in that book. And I wanted to go back. That's a study I would love to go back and do. It says, the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Similar phrase to what uh, uh, God said to Gideon. Uh, and Gideon was freaked out also, and so is, so is Mary. You'd think that Mary would be excited about knowing, Hey, you, you've been chosen by God. You've been favored. The idea of favored is the word charis or the word grace. This idea of grace is extended towards you. You have this grace. The God of all grace is going to give you grace. And, and instead of being excited about it, she's troubled. And she's afraid. Just like we are at many times when God leads us and says, uh, and we know that he has something for us and we're all of a sudden afraid and troubled and not sure that we want what he's getting ready to do. It says, do not be afraid, Mary, verse 30, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. Jesus. That's, you will name him that. You, you, he did, God, the, 
angel Gabriel didn't allow Elizabeth and Zechariah to name their child, didn't allow Mary either. God named them as he would, as he will. And then he tells him five things about this Jesus. He will be great. In other words, he's going to be a public figure. Everybody's going to know who he is. And he's going to accomplish great things. He'll be called son of the most high. And Semitic thought, this idea of son of, carried the idea of exact representation or the character of the father. And so this son of the most high, the son of God, is the picture and the focus of he is God. He is, in essence, God. Going back to Emmanuel, God with us. He'll be called, this child born, be called God with us. And so he's carrying that idea through. And the, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And in fact, you saw that in the, in the promise, uh, uh, or in, when it says Joseph, of the house of David. And I thought, it's kind of curious to me that it, with Joseph, it says Joseph of the house of David, and he's talking to Mary. You think, wait a minute, he's Jesus is born of Mary, but not of Joseph. So how is Joseph his father? By adoption. This idea that Joseph adopted Jesus, and this idea of, this strong idea of adoption in Scripture. What a beautiful picture of adoption when you think about that our Savior was both born and adopted. He was both fully God, fully man. And he was of the line of David on Joseph's side. Interestingly that he points that out there. But he's also of the line of David on Mary's side as we'll see in chapter 4. When you begin to read you see this genealogy and it's the genealogy of Mary's genealogy. And Matthew's genealogy of Joseph's genealogy. So we get the genealogy of both and they're both of the line of David. Similar to what we saw with Elizabeth and, and, and both of them being of the line of Aaron. And so this carries that same idea through. And she asked a question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now it looks like a similar question to what Zechariah asked her. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And yet he said to be a person of unbelief and she said to be a person of belief. Now we see that, that he believed on other things. It was just this one issue that he was struggling with. Why, is, why seemingly asking the same question? Well, it's not exactly the same. He's saying, how shall I know? In other words, I'm not sure you're telling me the truth. I'm not sure I can know this. I want something else to give me the knowledge. I want a sign is what uh, many commentators have thought that he was asking for. But in Mary's case, she was asking something completely different. She was asking, okay, what is that going to look like here? How is this going to work moving forward? I'm not sure what you're asking of me. And so her picture is a lot different. And we know that not because we're just coming up with, oh, one's an unbeliever and one uh, not believing and the other one is believing. It's because the text tells us. You always let Scripture interpret Scripture. And here in verse 45 it says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So she believed. And the text tells us, Zechariah did not believe. He says in, in verse 20, because you did not believe my words, what happened? He couldn't speak for nine months. And so, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That overshadow, that word is, is, a, is the same word that's used referring to the temple of God where the cloud uh, uh, over, uh, uh, um, overcame the, the people in the temple and, and kind of drove them out. It's that same picture on the Mount of Transfiguration, same word that's used to, to refer to the Mount of Transfiguration when the cloud came upon the mountain. And so it's that picture that this supernatural activity is going on. And it's coming from the Most High. And the Holy Spirit is involved in the process. It says, therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Now, that idea of holy, if you go forward to her song, in verse 49, it says, holy is his name. And you see the word holy here. He will be called holy, the Son of God. What is he saying? What is Luke saying? What is Luke wanting to make sure that we pick up on? He is sinless. Sinless humanity. Now, some have, have said, well, if he's sinless, then how can Mary, a sinful person, give birth to a sinless person? So therefore, she must be sinless. And then the whole theology of the Immaculate Conception came about that she also was born and, and without sin. But the reality is, we know that's not true. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because in verse 47, it says, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. A person who's perfect doesn't need a savior. She's admitting she needs a savior and therefore she's admitting her own sinfulness. That she needs a savior just like all the rest of us. And so there's mystery as to how it occurs. But we do know that she's not sinless. She wasn't immaculately conceived. Only Jesus was. And Jesus uh, was considered holy or sinless. And we see that through the rest of the New Testament. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, is the idea. The Son of God, they're again emphasizing that He is fully God and fully man, without sin, without division in person. It says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this was a sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible God with God. Why does, why does Gabriel talk about Elizabeth all of a sudden? Why does he bring her up? Because he knew that Mary was going to need encouragement. He knew that Mary was going to need uh, strengthening. He knew that Mary needed to know what's happening with you is also being done here. And just know Nothing's impossible with God. You saw it with, with Elizabeth and Zechariah. They, they they, they've been in their sixth month, and, and Elizabeth has been keeping it quiet. So maybe Mary didn't even know about it up until this point. But God wants her to know for a reason. I think the reason was so that Mary could go visit, which is exactly what she does in the text. It says, Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So she goes to visit Elizabeth. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, we don't know what town. We just know that it's somewhere in the area of Judah. And so when you look at a map of Israel, you see Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, Jordan River. That kind of gives you the idea of that boundary. Then you see Mediterranean Sea. So you see Israel's that area in between those, the uh, Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. 
And you see Nazareth up just uh, in the, in the uh, just this, this is the Jezreel Valley. Uh, it's in the Galilee area. It's just south of the Sea of Galilee. And if you went down to Jerusalem, Bethlehem area, uh, that would take about three days. If they go the way that they typically went, which was around Samaria, because they didn't want to defile their, themselves by walking through Samaria, uh, because they were worshiping differently than, and we see that in John chapter 4, they were worshiping on, on the mountain Gerizim and, and not in Jerusalem. And so they would go around and sometimes even across the Jordan River to get there. That would make it a four-day journey. And the traditional place is Ein Karim, where Elizabeth was, but we don't know from the text. The text doesn't tell us. It just says, to the hill country, to a town in Judea, in the hill country. So we know it wasn't along the coast here, in the, in the footlands, uh, or, or down there, the, what's called the Shephelah. And so it's just, it's got to be in this area. This part is all desert. Uh, south of there is desert. And so we know it was in somewhere in this area. And so very close to Bethlehem, very close to, to, uh, to Jerusalem, which is here. And so she makes this three or four day journey, depending on how she went. And the interesting thing about that is one of the commentators mentioned women didn't travel alone, so she must have had people with her. And it's like, wow, who would have gone with her? That must have been a difficult journey for her, even with, you know, you think about her going and she finally gets away from home and, and, and maybe the stresses of that. But she's got people with her, going with her, traveling with her. And yet she gets to see Elizabeth. It says, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Interesting that she's filled with the Holy Spirit because her son also was, as we see in uh, uh, chapter 1 and verse uh, 15, it says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And so the baby's been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me the mother of my, that my mother of my Lord should come to me? Reaffirming what Mary had said. Reaffirming what God had done in her life. Reaffirming for Mary, yes, this is the, you are the mother of, of my Lord. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my, my womb leapt for joy. How did she know that that movement of the, of the baby in her was, was for joy? Because the Spirit of God was in her, was in the baby, communicating to her. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So this idea of being willing to do what the Lord had communicated to her had caused her to receive the pain that we see later in life as well that came about as a result of people misunderstanding who Jesus was and crucifying him and even questioning his own birth. And yet she, grow, she, she speaks out in praise. She speaks out in worship. One of the four songs that we see in the first two chapters of Luke my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Two names of God, Lord, Savior, that, that she will follow the Lord, that, that God is her Savior. And then we see some other names of God listed through this song. I'm going to kind of take it apart a little bit by show you different things in this song. He calls, he's called uh, Mighty. 
He's called holy in verse 49, merciful in verse 50, strong in verse 51. Six names of God, six focuses there, but not only focuses on who God is, but focuses on, on what God has done. Because we, we see this, he has, eight times in this song. Verse 48, he has looked on the humble. 49, he who is mighty has done great things. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. Also in 51, he has scattered the proud. 52, he has brought down the mighty. 53, he has filled the hungry. The rich, he has sent away. 54, he has helped his servant Israel. And so this idea of God's working and her focus throughout is God, God himself, even as she structures it a little bit differently in this song because we see uh, three, three kind of ma major focuses here. What God did for Mary in the first part of, the, of this song, uh, what God does for us in the second part, and what God did for Israel in the third part of this song. And so we see that her, she's saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he has done mighty, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And so you see these things that have been done for her. I love this idea that he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That idea of humble kind of reminds us of Hagar, who was, who said, uh, who was, cast out of her home by Sarah, and, and, and she calls God El Roy, the God who sees. We have a God who looks on us. He looks on his servants. He looks on his people, and he doesn't forget us. He's, he's, it, we're not going through stuff alone in this life where he's not aware, not observing. And so she focuses on this idea that we have a God who sees And then we have this idea of him doing things for us. Verse 51, or verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, now she's looking forward. The mercy of God on us. Mercy of God. We don't get what we deserve, which is judgment, because of Jesus Christ. He has shown strength with his arm. We see his strength as we see him work in our world. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And it's this idea that, that uh, and you see it in Scripture, uh, played out over and over, where he humbles those who exalt himself and he, and, he, and he exalts the humble. It's either we humble ourselves or he's going to do it. And we let him exalt us instead of us doing it ourselves. And so this picture of, 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 and, and this, of what God is going to do, of God working, of God exalting those who, who respond to his mercy, who respond to his grace. He brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble of state. 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. And then we see in 54 and 55, he has helped his servant Israel. He hasn't forgotten Israel. There's still a plan for Israel. The church has not taken over for Israel. God still has a plan for, for, the, for them. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God remembers his promises. He doesn't forget them. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. She stayed there apparently till the baby was born. She stayed there and found encouragement from Mary for three months before she began to take a very difficult journey of her own. When we look at this passage, we, we think about how in the first section, and that idea of anticipation, that idea of expectation, we look at this passage, we, we see the idea of faith, that we live by faith, that we follow the same path that Mary had because God is setting up our hearts. He's preparing our hearts for living according to Christ, to live according to the Messiah, to live according to his promises, to live according to his word. And so I want to encourage you as we think about this together, where are you? Are you living in anticipation of God working are you looking for his hand at work? Because when you look for his hand and you see it, you'll find great encouragement. You'll see his hand working and you know God is, is, is moving. But then when you, when you see his hand moving and he leads your heart, go in the direction that he asks you to go. Serve him. Live by faith. Because as you do, there's no greater way to live. But it may involve a very difficult journey on the way. The rewards are out of this world. Let's live for him. Father, we come to you. And we thank you for what you have done for us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to show the courage of a Mary. To live for you. To live in the way that you've designed us to live. To live by faith. Trusting you. Even though we don't know how the details are all going to work out. Even though we initially may be afraid of what you're asking us to do. Lord, I, I know that there's people here that you may be leading them to speak to a family member this Christmas season about you. Lord, I pray that they would do it. I pray that they would say yes to you. Lord, you may be leading couples to, to work through their marriages. Father, I pray that they would say yes to you. Father, you may be leading us in, in all sorts of directions that, that don't seem clear to us now and may be later. It may involve pain, may be difficult. Lord, I pray that we would always say yes to you. Jesus died for us. We can say no other. We can do no other than to live for you. And Lord, I pray that we would. Help us to live in the strength of your grace. Help our lives to be those who are lived for a meaningful existence that, that make eternal significantly, significant difference. Guide us, Lord, and may we follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.